are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Resilient, inquisitive, dedicated. Since making her orchestral debut with the Toledo Symphony Orchestra at the age of 13, Holly Rodefelt has continued to be an active solo pianist and chamber musician performing standard and eclectic recital programs in the United States, Europe, and Asia. Described as a vivid pianist, Holly's mission is to inspire and advocate for piano music of the highest caliber, and she regularly mixes newly composed music with established masterpieces. Currently, Holly has premiered over 150 works for solo piano. The Preludes Project CD is Holly's debut solo album, produced and recorded by multi-Grammy Award winner Andreas Meyer, and it was released by Parmer Recordings in November of 2016. The double CD includes Chopin's Opus 28 Preludes and Kirk O'Riordan's 26 Preludes for Solo Piano. Well, Holly, good to meet you. Um, I reached out because uh, we follow each other on Twitter, and I kept seeing all of the new music concerts you were posting about. Um, So we will hear some of your performances and recordings of new pieces tonight, and I wanted to start with uh, Kirk O'Riordan's Prelude 26. Uh, so you recorded this as part of your CD, The Preludes Project. Uh, can you tell me about that project and and then this piece that we're going to hear? Sure. This is actually a project. I kind of stumbled upon it because I was hired by Marie Chouinard, the dance company, to play Chopin's 24 Preludes along with modern dance, their modern dance performance. And it completely changed the way that I was thinking about Chopin's Preludes, and especially when you have that modern twist. And so I was thinking about performing the Preludes along with some modern day Preludes. So I talked to a few a few composers, some friends of mine, and my husband, Kirk O'Riordan, is a composer, and he decided to write 26 Preludes. And so in the process of learning his Preludes and then reviewing the Chopin Preludes, some that I had played as a child and then others that I had never even heard because as pianists, we immediately jump to the etudes and we the scherzos and all the big uh-huh. virtuosic works. Um, I learned so much about Chopin's works. And then I also learned a lot about how I was listening to contemporary works. And so the Preludes Project, the CD, was a double CD of Chopin's 24 Preludes and Kirk's 26 Preludes. I realized that this was a way that I could also program a number of recitals. So I worked with many composers who wrote Preludes, and then I would just kind of mix them up between that and Debussy and works of Rachmaninoff and Bach. And I ended up with, I think in multiple states. I think that the number was 17 states where I did a lot of these premieres and had dozens and dozens of preludes that I was able to do. So there's the CD, which is just Chopin and O'Riordan's works, but then there's also um, this whole big project that ended up being about three years long by the time I was Hmm. finished with it. It was really terrific. So um, the 26th prelude, this is a prelude that Kirk wrote last. Uh, I'm sorry, he it's the last prelude, but he wrote this first. I meant to say first. Right, yeah. But then after he wrote this prelude, he realized that he had nothing to follow it. So he just kept on writing <laughs> preludes that went ahead of it. And so it's one of my favorite ones. 
so prelude 26 and what are the what are the some of the other preludes like you know mm -hmm. actually um Thank you for asking that. Uh, he has some that are reminiscent of Arvo Pert. He has a few that are 12 tone. He has some that are freely atonal. Um, he has a whole tone uh, scales. And he has a lot of those kind of um, types of 20, 20th century writing. So kind of mid and early 20th century writing and then late 20th and early 21st century writing and so each prelude kind of is that snapshot of a type of prelude and so of course there are nicknames that i've given them that are not the actual names you know like <laughs> this one sounds like a haunted music box or you know mm -hmm. this has um this is a little bit more angular um there's a left hand prelude that reminds you of scriabin's left hand prelude mm -hmm. they're really they're very special gems in it's a terrific to work in the miniature form. And I ended up really enjoying doing that with a number of composers because you could see all those different sides of their personality rather than having that 20 minute long sonata, you know, to really be able to say, okay, well today I'm feeling this and today I'm feeling this. Yeah. I think the miniature format really lends itself well to, like you say, snapshots or just like tastes of of a person or or their compositional personality i mean i've 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 written god um maybe i think four different sets of miniatures i really mm -hmm. like the miniature format just because um i've i've talked about this before on on the podcast but it really is a way of compositionally kind of staying in the moment you know um how basically a miniature can can be just about one thing and you know when you're writing that 20 minute long sonata or something you have to constantly be like okay well i'm in this section right now but i have to move you know i have to move the uh the feeling and the atmosphere towards this section and then i've got oh my gosh this other section how am i going to get to that so it's a lot of like future planning and and thinking thinking ahead but i feel like whereas a miniature you can really just be i'm going to write this today you know and uh and it, it really can just be about that that singular thing that one thing what is the 26th one you, you kind of talked about the other the you know some of the other preludes but what is specifically the 26th um what what are we going to hear well this is something where you only have a few chords and it's very gentle it's very contemplative and I think that's the other thing that I really enjoyed with this project is that <laughs> all the way through school and when you get out of grad school or if you, you, know, you start your jobs and you have to play the most virtuosic pieces ever because right. otherwise you're not a real performer. You, know, you have to <laughs> right. like show your chops. You have to prove yourself constantly. And I think that this particular piece when I was able to reflect upon it, I realized that I could just listen. And how mm. refreshing is it to just listen? And I, which seems so ridiculous because what else are we doing? Of course we're listening, but no, we're re listening to the spaces in between. 
And then I realized that somewhere in the last five, ten years or so, I made that flip between wanting to be the most virtuosic pianist ever and then listening to the space between. Hmm. Well, let's listen. Let's listen to those in-between spaces with this one. <laughs> okay. So, so this is Kirk O'Reardon's Prelude 26. It seems like you're trying to bridge the past and the present. I mean, with with an immense repertoire for piano, I think some pianists don't even bother with new music. You know, they they could literally play masterpieces from the past for their entire lives and and never run out of music, uh, and 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 never engage with anything from the present. So, what drives you to commission, to premiere, to seek out new works? Even before I met my husband, I was playing new music. Actually, I was playing new music even in high school or even junior high. And I think it was those experiences. Like, I remember one of the first pieces that I thought I absolutely had to play, and some people may be shocked about this, um, was Copeland's Piano Variations. Oh, and I was like 13 I love or 14. It. It's yes. my favorite piece. <laughs> it's so yeah. good. 
<laughs> it is a terrific piece. But when you think about like your average 13 or 14 year old student, you know, they're, they're playing Chopin or they're playing Rachmaninoff or, you know, they have those things that they, I don't know, those audience pleasers. And I was dying to play the Copeland variations. And um, I think that when I when I went to Eastman, and that's where I did my undergrad, we were asked in this class, it was, I remember this so vividly, it was a piano class, and someone said, how many of you have played uh, music from the 20th century, um, five or more pieces? And I was the only person who raised her hand. You know, oh I mean, and that was it. Like, and, yeah. and by that point, I mean, I was counting like 20, 25. I mean, I really had a teacher that thought that was important. And so then what I ended up doing is I was playing a lot of new music, a lot of composers pieces at Eastman. And I just thought it was fun. I mean, it was something that I could see. Um, I could see the personalities of the composers in the pieces. It was like a different, it was, I don't want to say this in a, in a um, in a way that I would never read their diary, but it was like their diary. It was something. It was that very like that very wonderful side that they were afraid to actually verbalize, you know. And so that's actually something that I do say once I get to know a composer very well. And so I probably shouldn't say it in a podcast, but um, it is. I see sides of composers that are really special that maybe they're not quite ready to say, oh yeah, I really enjoy this aspect of life. Um, and so I find that I get to know a composer through their music. And it's, yeah, it's like saying something about your friend that, that you, they have this really terrific quality, but they don't see it in themselves. That's a better way to say it. Um, yeah. But anyway, I just enjoyed that. I did it all the way through school. I played new music all, all the time. Friends, um, I just enjoyed that aspect. And then when I left school, I ended up finding that I was doing these pieces kind of like, oh, either through the College Music Society or SCI or something like that, where they needed a pianist to play a piece. And it felt... <laughs> felt so cheap, honestly. It was like one of those hit and run things, you know, like you would yeah. learn the piece, you would play it once and then that was it. And I'm like, this is so stupid because if I spend, I don't know, 300 hours on a big Chopin work, you know, or if I spend um, 500 hours in the Barber Sonata or something like that, why am I playing this one piece once? And so I really thought it was important to play pieces multiple times so that I started to see the different layers, just like that etude that you've played for 20 years takes on a totally different feeling. It feels different under your fingers. It, you bring out different voices. I wanted to have that relationship with new music. I wanted to have that relationship with the composers. And so therefore, friendship started to emerge because I cared more than just that hit and run. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it seems like really, you know, music, especially new music is about, for you, it seems like it's very, uh, a very social aspect. You know, you're, you're developing these relationships with, uh, with composers and, you know, that is facilitated through composing and performing music, but it really seems like, you know, you're kind of, you, you have that desire to kind of like, you know, 
make those relationships and make them last. Yeah, it means a lot to me. And not all those relationships do last. I mean, I think that sure. sometimes, um, back to the hit and run, sometimes I think if a composer really just wants um, a person to just to play a piece once and they want to move on to the next project, and you know, and that's fine. I mean, that's sometimes they have their eye on a bigger prize. Um, but I, I guess now, since I've been doing this for so long, since I've been doing this since... I was in my late teens, I'd much rather work with the person that I can play five or six or 10 or 20 of their pieces down Mm -hmm. the line rather than just have just that single experience. And so when you have all those pieces, then you do build a relationship. Yeah. So um, after you left grad school and maybe, you know, or after you left school and maybe your network, you know, got... I, I don't know. Did did your network kind of get smaller, or was it was it more insular um, after school? I mean, that that certainly happened to me. I think. And then you know, it seems like you've been able to use Twitter and social media to really like you know put yourself out there and meet a lot of people. Like the next piece we're going to listen to, uh, Kayla Pearson. You met her through mm-hmm. social media, right? Yes, I did. Yes. And actually, um, Kayla isn't on Twitter so much anymore, but she said that she was glad that the time that she was really interested in Twitter, the golden age for her, was right. when we met. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I played a lot of Kayla's pieces. But um, yeah, I think you are absolutely right. And I mean, I hate to sound cynical about this whole thing, but um, you know, in grad school, we were so, well, certain grad students, but definitely I was one of those, and I'm sure you were too, where you were just so immersed in the culture, and you were so excited yeah. just to make music, and you were, it was 24-7, you know, and I kind of had the idea that when I got my first college job, that that's what it would be like, that all the faculty would be just like a bunch of grad <laughs> students, and, you know, making music as often as possible. I know you're laughing, because it's like... Right. When does that happen? I'm still yeah. finding, looking for that um, position, um, but I really, I really wanted that to happen. And I, did, and it mm-hmm. was not only with new music, but just chamber music and and sure. talking with students and saying, "Oh yes, and look what we can create." And then when I realized that people weren't as into it, yes, that's when it shrunk. Your mm-hmm. whole network shrunk, and that's when you know I started doing those like, you know, the the one the one piece and then you just like hi i'm holly hi i'm bah, 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 you know? hi, i'm holly then, i'm gonna play your piece now <laughs> exactly <laughs> i just thought oh man this just feels so cold um yeah yeah so i think that i mean first of all i have to laugh again because um when facebook came out um and i was teaching college and and so, you know, I'm a little older than some of the people here on, on uh, who may be listening, you know, but I had college students. It was my first college job and, and they were all into Facebook. And the last thing I wanted to do was be on a social media platform that all my students were on. I just, right, yeah. I just had wanted to have nothing to do with that. And so I was really a latecomer to a lot of this. And it was really because of my husband who was on Twitter and he said, oh, yeah, well, you know, I think you'll enjoy this. 
And then I ended up doing it much more than he did. (laughs) And so um, I found out that I actually, yeah, I did enjoy those contacts. I mean, I know you asked that question like five minutes ago. But I mean, I think it's important (laughs) that, like, you know, we think that we think that we're going to end up in a situation and it's so totally different than we anticipated. And Mm -hmm. I really would never have guessed that social media would have been this. And I know that yeah. people on Facebook, they use Facebook much differently than I, you know, I mean, I, I'm not on it, but I mean, it's just, they have a different way. But I think for Twitter in that golden age that Kayla and I <laughs> joked about, um, mm-hmm. it really was terrific for meeting people. And she helped me out a lot in like yeah. figuring out things. Yeah. So her piece is called uh, Transfuse. And uh, it's from 2017, and we're going to be listening to the world. Uh, you you gave the world premiere of this uh, this piece. Um, was this piece written for you? Uh, what wh- like what? Tell us a little bit about uh, this piece, Transfuse. Yes, actually, um, her first prelude that she wrote for me was called Spark, and then she wrote Flare, and then Transfuse. And then she put them in a set after that called Motion Blur. And so Spark, the first one that she wrote for the Preludes Project, I think I played maybe 50 times. I mean, it just was unbelievable. But I think what I really wanted to do on this particular podcast is do as many of those premieres because, again, a little bit of a soapbox. The idea is, yeah, here's the first one, but I'm still playing a lot of the pieces that I gave to you. And I've already mm-hmm. had like 10 more performances since then. And it's nice to see like how they change. I think that's important. Yeah. So let's listen to it now. This is Kayla Pearson's Transfuse from the larger piece Motion Blur.
getting back to you know meeting people on social media, especially meeting people on Twitter, uh, we have uh, Anthony Landman's uh, piece, homage uh, Eddie Van Halen, and I mean, <clears throat> I if if uh, I I'm sure that uh, the listeners know about uh, Anthony Landman's podcast, One Track Podcast. Um, it's it's a really good one. A lot of adjective people have been on it. I believe you've been on it, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, it's 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 a great uh, uh, another uh, great music pod podcast. You know, new music podcast. But Anthony is a guitarist, and um, I mean, this you know, this piece seems kind of straightforward to me. He's a guitarist, and you can just as easily imagine this piece uh, being played on guitar. I'm kind of curious how the patterns, you know, lie in the hands. Do, do they make the transition from guitar to piano nicely? I mean, certainly going the other way, a lot of times piano chords or, or gesture formations don't lay nicely on the guitar. So I'm kind of wondering, does it, does it work oppositely? Um, yeah, actually... <laughs> Um, I love Tony, and um, he, this is the first piece that he sent me at the homages, and he has written five, and he is about ready to send me number six. Um, and he has always the question, um, is this playable? And they always are. <laughs> They're beautifully written. And this particular one, you know, it's funny because, you know, I, again, I, I, did the premiere for this but it's changed a lot and he had this metronome marking and and the one thing that I remember uh, writing to him and I say do you mind if I play it faster than you've written <laughs> and he <laughs> was really surprised because you know here's this virtuoso guitar piece but it lays so neatly underneath the hand that it's like oh okay yeah this is this is fantastic um but yeah so Tony I just should say he and I did not meet on Twitter we actually oh, really? met at oh. a, yeah, we met at a conference. Can you believe it? It was Oh my god. Me- yeah. IRL. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um it's you know I'm embarrassed to say like what was the name of that conference? I don't know remember the name of the conference. But you know, so like all these composers that You know, that that one. That one, you know. <laughs> but I had met some people through social media before and it's just but he heard me play something, and then he's we just hit it off. And um, Kirk was there, and um, Tony's wife Jen was there, and we just really had a wonderful time. So it was only you know then again like the old fashioned way. Can I send you some music? And hey, you know how about if I write something for you? And and then it just ended up being this friendship that um, we, he and I talk at least once a month, um, sometimes you know a couple times a month. And it's and he just sends me these pieces and every single one, homage to Jackson Pollock, homage to Ayoko Miyazaki, homage to Hildegard von Bingen, um, everything he just hits out of the park. It's just fantastic, brilliant writing, and they're all different. Those are really, really diverse. Um, yes, homages, I guess you know, yes. like. Hildegard to Eddie Van Halen and visual artists in there as well. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, and we're going to listen to your your uh, world premiere uh, recording of this piece. So this is Anthony Landman, homage uh, Eddie Van Halen. 
the next one uh, is a piece by Stephanie Ann Boyd. It's called Lilac. And uh, this, this piece was not written specifically for you. So how did you find this work and, and kind of why did it speak to you? Why did you need to pick it up and perform it? Well, um, I was doing another conference. Um, it was the Music by Women in down in Columbus, Mississippi. And I went down there three times. And I had different programs. The first time I played Joan Towers, No Longer Very Clear, Her Suite. And the second time I played some Clara Schumann and Lily Boulanger, and I mixed it up with some other pieces that were written for me. And then, again, kind of on this mission, um, I have this desire to make sure that I'm playing pieces multiple times. But then sometimes you have pieces that are written for a particular person, and then sometimes... um, other people won't play it if it was written for somebody else. And right, so depending yeah. on how they carry the ball, I mean, maybe they'll play it multiple times and they probably will. Hopefully they will. Um, but I just kind of thought, you know what? I really want to play one set of pieces that was not written for me. And I was very specific that I had some pieces that were written for me from 2017 and one program, and then pieces that were not written for me that were written in 2018 to have that like additional performer performance. And I think some of them definitely were played um, multiple times, but Lilac happened to be one because I, I put this out on Twitter. I'm going to laugh every time I say Twitter. Um, I put it out on Twitter. Is there anybody who has a piece composed in 2018? I'm looking for female composers. And um, Stephanie is, you know, right on the ball. So she says, here's this piece, you know, of 2018. And I really fell in love with it. Well, um, I fell in love with it enough that I I played it about 10 times now. And I really have found multiple ways to program it. I've performed it in a set with Chaminade. I recently played a program that was beyond the three Bs where I did play something of Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms, but I also played the Barber Sonata and Stephanie's piece and something by Amy Beach. And, you know, like there's so many different ways of programming Lilac. And then um, Stephanie decided that she wanted to Um, write this flower catalog and so she asked if she could write a piece for me and so she wrote daffodil which I'm going to be premiering in a couple of months in fact I just got the score a few days ago (laughs) and so um yeah so that's again one of those relationships I've gotten to know Stephanie I, I I think she's a really fantastic composer and I'm delighted that I was able to play uh, lilac and I'll continue to play it and now I have another piece that I can play with it just for these two pieces, and I'm sure she'll continue to write many more. Yeah, you you have you have this knack of kind of getting composers to start writing in series for you. you know? <laughs> yes, <laughs> Tony, Kirk, Stephanie. It was like, I'm I'm just going to keep writing for you. You know, if we get to 26, if we if we stop it, just to cut. Fair enough, but but yeah. You you've successfully shed the one and done. <laughs> well, you know, I I like that people would want to continue writing. I mean, I yeah. think um, I'm hoping anyway that there are again not every match is perfect, um, mm-hmm. but 
these people that I've been mentioning, and, and there are many others, and Kayla is one of them too, um, I like the fact that they want to write multiple pieces. And I love yeah. seeing what's new. You know, it's kind of like, oh yeah, this is a Kayla piece, but it's also a different Kayla piece. Or this is a Tony piece, but man, it's completely different than his last one. You know, mm-hmm. and the same thing with Stephanie's and Kirk's and there you go. Yeah, I mean, I think going back to, you know, finding those pieces for for which this would be, you know, a even if it's just a second performance or if it's 10th performance or 50th or who cares? I mean, I just think that's so important for the, you know, the life of a work that it gets put in front of different audiences because, you know, that premiere could have had 10 people there or it could have had 100 people there. But the the fact of the matter is, is that I think a lot of people have so a, a much, much better experience with a piece when they hear it live when they hear it in a concert setting as opposed to you know oh i got my perf- i i got my premiere performance recording i'm gonna throw it up on soundcloud i just don't know you know how many people are actively you know searching those things and going out and, and listening to that stuff because music is just better when it's live you know it's not it's just not as good when you're listening even even on the best speakers even on the best headphones there's a certain uh thing that happens when you're listening to a live performer in a live setting with other people around you you know it, it just it's it's magic and you know being able to to reach out to composers for send me your send me your non premieres or you know send me like these kinds of things or go looking at this i think this is just so important for the life of those pieces and also the health of you know the new music community that we're not all just premiere hunting that we're not just you know getting getting that one piece and then it hap- it happens the one time and then that's it and like you say you know composers like oh okay i guess i need to move on but giving those composers an opportunity to revisit you know those those pieces and see well how have i changed how how is this music changed you know how how is this performer interpreting it in a new way that i've never that the first one did not. I mean, that's that's just such, I think that's just such a gift to the composer, to the community, and to it seems like to yourself. Oh no, I really I love it, and even with like, um, I mean, I'm trying not to judge too much. Like, oh yeah, that premiere. I oh now I do this differently, and oh yeah. I mean, there are plenty of places that I can say that to, um, but it's what I do instead is I, I talk to the composer and I say, you know what, I have, I found out a different way of peddling this. And, oh, and I, I experimented with such and so. And, and I guess that's the other thing that I should say about these composers that um, I've included and that I talk about and that are friends. Um, I like the fact that they have given me so much liberty to mm. explore. It's not like I'm trying to do something that's not on the page. And actually, usually what happens is they say, What's funny is, um, I, I won't pinpoint certain composers, but a lot of them say, oh, that's exactly what I had in my head. And I was like, really? Exactly? You know, um, but, <laughs> but at least I know that I'm in there, you know, again, their psyche. There's, there's something in there because 
Um, and the reason I think that's funny is because like, I'm going to probably change my mind tomorrow, you know? Um, right. But I think <laughs> that it's, it's really neat. Like when you're reading a great script and you have an actor that's going to play it a little differently. And then if you, if you have a director that micromanages, it kind of spoils it. But if you kind of let the actor explore and find the nuances, you might find something that's a little different. And, um, and I think that's where that true collaboration, that freedom is, is so fun, so wonderful. Let's listen to this piece, Lilac from 2018 by Stephanie Ann Boyd. Thank you. 
so next we have a piece by James Moberly, and um, I definitely think we've talked about James Moberly on the podcast before. You know, he writes a lot of electronic music, but mm-hmm. this piece, Cat's Cradle, um, uh, from 2018, we're going to hear your your world premiere uh, performance of it. So tell me how this piece came about and your connection with Jim Moberly. Okay. So I was playing a concert at uh, UMKC, and I was there because I was doing a premiere of Mara Gibson's Conundrums. And so she wrote mm-hmm. this set of six preludes um, that was on her Skyborne CD. I recorded it for Skyborne, and she has a lot of wonderful uh, instrumental and some vocal um pieces on this like vocal instrumental combinations um really really colorful and it was released by parma and so she asked if i would record these conundrums and so i was out there just performing that and then i also did some of tony's pieces and a set of preludes and lots of different things that had been written for me in the last few years and i played uh, one of jim moberly's pieces and just like this tiny little one that had a very small like um, playback part and there's a big joke with composers and me and it's kind of embarrassing but I'm getting out of it a little bit that I wanted to do more with electronics and I did do Mm -hmm. something with looper pedal um, that Tony wrote for me but it's kind of like composers really they, they see people who do a lot with piano and electronics and so then they write for people who are already doing it and so every time I think I found a composer who can, will write a piece for me, um, they say, no, I, I really want to write an acoustic piece for you. <laughs> and so it's kind of like they look at me and say, yeah, no, if you're playing typecast. Chopin. Typecast. Yeah, I'm totally typecast. And that's okay because I can play in more places. But I still, you know, like I'm dying. Um, yeah. But anyway, so Jim Moberly here I was thinking that, okay, well, maybe, you know, this is I can kind of work my way in. And he says, you know, I'd really like to write a piece for you. And I thought, I've arrived. And he says, but I want it to be acoustic. And I was like, okay, you know what? That's all right. I'll take it. I'll take it. So um, anyway, this piece, Cat's Cradle, again, is a piece that I'm going to be playing um, a, a couple months from now. And it's another one that just is, evolves. And so, again, you have this world premiere and, you know, you have somebody with the stature of Jim Moberly. And, you know, you want to make sure you have everything right. You know, and then once you have that recording out, once you have done the notes and you like, you're like, okay, I've done his nuances. This is the tempo that he has, you know, then there's like, you can exhale and it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. you know, now I can, um, I'm going to take a few more chances and maybe go a little bit faster and maybe do something like this and, you know, be a little bit more violent. And, and some of these things, you know, has these glissandos and these repeated chords and this, you know, great fury. And his whole idea behind this piece was that as listeners, we get used to hearing a certain thing, you know, we're like, okay, yeah, it's going to go here and now it's going to happen this and okay, five, one, whatever. And you're ready for that. So you get bored. But then if you have something that's too out there, then you get frustrated because you can't follow what's going on. So in this piece, he purposely said, okay, we're going to get you used to it. And then boom, we're going to go someplace else. And now we're going to get used to this. And boom, we're going to go someplace else. And I think that piece really works that way. But see, now that's another perfect one for a performer because we can set up what we're used to doing as a performer 
and then mm-hmm. now change it. And so there's so much room for interpretation and so much room for just different performances by the same performer. So, yeah. Yeah. And a delightful well, man, this- too. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. 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 So let's listen to the delightful man's piece. Uh, this is this is uh, James Moberly and Cat's Cradle from 2018.
So let's end with uh, Rasa Dacus and uh, the piece Glistenality. Was uh, was Rasa another Twitter connection or how did you meet? Yes, she definitely was. She lives in Australia. And um, just a really kind person that we used to have some conversations via Twitter. And when I was doing my Kickstarter for the Preludes Project... She donated to this, and I thought that was so very nice. And I so I sent my CD to Australia, and she was really just, a, again, a really warm, supportive human being, somebody that, you know, that pen pal that you've always wanted when you were eight mm, across yeah. the world, you know. And so I asked her if she had any piano pieces because she's part of this piano and percussion duo called Tess Said So, and they do all of these um, concerts. They even did uh, like the live performance to Nosferatu, the um, silent film. And, and I just thought, wouldn't it be nice if she had some piano pieces? And then the next thing I knew, she sent me this piece and it had my name on the top of it. And, mm. you know, it's, it's one of those things that, I mean, it's always special and it's always... It's heartwarming. It's it's a privilege when you see your name at the top of a score that somebody has created. It really is. But when it's unexpected, you know, it just that was just so much more. And then she told me the story um, that went behind it, and apparently, um, her father, uh, when he was a young boy. Uh, they were fleeing from the Russians, they were Lithuanian, and they traveled a thousand kilometers in just a wagon and some suitcases. And he had his birthday on this trip. And so his sister carved a star out of a potato and gave it to her father. And that was 
what was the inspiration to Glisonality. So here's this beautiful story with this beautiful pen pal <laughs> and somebody that I would really love to meet and I hope that I will at some point. And she and I are still in contact. It's been four or five years now through Twitter and we're continuing our collaboration and um, she's writing more pieces. And again, th there's that relationship. So we haven't even met, yeah. but um, I, I played Glistenality quite a bit. And um, yeah, I'm very, very, very fond of this piece. Well, let's just listen to it. So this is Rasa Dacus and her piece Glistenality.
So we've come to the end. The big question that I ask all the composers and artists and performers who are on the podcast, how did you come to music as the thing that you wanted to pursue for your life? Okay. So I'm pausing a little bit because I'm usually kind of guarded with that question because usually when you hear that question, you really want somebody to say that moment. Like, what mm -hmm. was that moment that you really knew? And when I think back early in my life, and I was playing the piano as a child, and I would play concerts for my stuffed animals, and I would <laughs> sing bad pop songs to get me through junior high breakups, you know, I still never thought, oh, I'm going to be a musician. It was just something that I just went to for comfort. And because I was introverted, I actually felt like sometimes it was it was a really good friend. Chopin was my friend. Rachmaninoff was my friend. Um, and the sad part is that my father, very um, entrenched into 1950s ideals, um, the only reason he let me study music in college was because he really thought that I was just going to get married anyway. And so no. he told me to pick. <laughs> universities, yes, based on husband material. And so, you know, imagine his surprise when I married a musician, you know, so um, <laughs> you know, the ultimate defiance, right? right but actually yeah. that, you know, that wasn't even the ultimate defiance. The ultimate defiance was that I got a doctorate and I, in piano performance. And, and I think even then I never really thought I was a musician because really what I wanted to be was a teacher. And so that was another childhood fantasy was just like I would I would play school and I would let come up with worksheets and I really enjoyed that. And I think that because music was the only thing in my life that I was constantly interested in, that I wanted to keep learning, that I couldn't live without it, that I got very depressed if I was away from it. Um, I think it just it wasn't do I want to make music in my life? It was more survival. Mm. I had to survive. It was air. It was food. It was shelter. It was my friends. And I've already hinted at all this when we were talking about all these composers and you see how emotionally attached I am to so many of them. Yeah. And so it's their friendship that was so important. And these, these friendships, these relationships of musical understanding, you know, and how we get to know people. So um, I think there's still that little girl in me that says, can I be a musician when I grow up? Because I'm still in that hmm. learning phase. So I, I know that's not that great moment. <laughs> no, yeah. like, Thank you. So, you know, some people, some people have one moment. Some people have many moments. Some people have no moment. It just like <laughs> slowly kind of s creeps in that, oh yeah, this is, this is what I should do. Yeah. So that that's great. Uh, before we go, we should uh, mention uh, your website, your Twitter account, 
and uh, the album you uh, that Kirk O'Reardon has coming out on which you are playing uh, many tracks. Yes. Okay, great. So my website is hollyroadfelt.com and my Twitter handle is hrodfelt and my Instagram handle is hrodfelt and I'm... Yes, frequently on Twitter. I like to <laughs> put a couple <laughs> posts up there. Um, and then the album coming out February 14th, so you can't forget that on Valentine's Day, is Autumn Winds. And Kirk O'Riordan, who's also my husband, uh, wrote this beautiful collection of pieces. Um, Autumn Winds is actually one of the major pieces in the album. It's a 30-minute long song cycle. Um, that I'm performing with Anne Moss. She's really amazing on this. And then he also wrote four beautiful songs that I'm performing with Anne and Peter Dutilli on viola. And the poetry for that uh, was by Lee Upton. She's on the faculty of Lafayette College, and it's absolutely stunning, like just mind-blowingly mm. amazing. Um, and then the Autumn Winds is actually haiku, I should mention that, which so they're really interesting pieces. And then I'm doing a violin piano piece uh, called Prayer Stones with Peter. And then there's an amazing solo piano piece which mixes minimalism and 12-tone techniques called Beautiful Nightmares. And that's the last track on the album. Awesome. And which, which uh, record label is that coming out on? Thank you for asking. Yes, it is on Parma Recordings. So awesome. Parmer is releasing it, yes. So February 14th, Autumn Winds, H. Roadfelt on Twitter, hollyroadfelt.com, all the places. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time. It's, it was really nice yeah, talking with you. Thank you, Holly. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.